Monday, Monday afternoon, afternoon. Theologians. 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 And speaking of football, which we can in great length because it's that time of year, at least at the time of this recording. It is. And I got to tell you, my local college team, my daughter works for the University of Michigan. So we are the Wolverines in this area. And they've been doing fantastic. That's right. Number two in the nation after defeating Ohio State and then winning the conference championship over Purdue. For the first time in a long time, I actually watched a couple of the games in real time. But perhaps more exciting than the game itself was at halftime. Dr. Pepper was sponsoring a tuition payment for a couple of student athletes who were Uh tossing footballs into these big, looked like Dr. Pepper cans with a hole in it. Right. And at the TCU game, it was far and away the one beat the other. They gave that person $100,000 toward their tuition. Not bad. Yeah. But then in the Georgia game, (laughs) the first round, the two women who were competing tied as time ran out. Oh, man. And they essentially tied again, but one of them had thrown just slightly before the other and was declared the winner. And the one who was declared not the winner was very gracious and congratulated the other woman and off they went. But about the time the fourth quarter was rolling around, the announcers came on and said, Dr. Pepper has decided that because they had tied in the second round, they were giving $100,000 to each of the two women because they had tied so closely. That made that second girl very, very happy. Very happy. I can't help but think that there's somebody high enough up the ladder in Dr. Pepper who had the influence and the authority to make that kind of decision. Man, that was brilliant. And I think there are a lot of people who tend to think of God. I mean, this is a a podcast about theology after all. So I I tend to tie a lot of things into thinking about God. (laughs) Oh, we would hope so. Yeah. But I can't help but think that a lot of people think of God as being this capricious, whimsical tyrant. And yet I think everything we see in the scriptures points to the fact that he can be absolutely trusted to make the most fair decision possible. That's one of the reasons we do what we do. We're trying to present the God who is absolutely fair, we can trust him to make the right decisions, including the decisions about people's eternal destiny. We can trust him to be fair. And that ties exactly into what we've been talking about for a couple of weeks, and now we're going to finish up this, we're calling episode 9C. We're going to delve a little bit more into some of the new age things that are creeping into the church. Yep. And we're not referring to an individual This is not some sort of slur about a new age creep. (laughs) We're just saying that we're using creep as a verb, not a noun. There are some priorities that we're trying to keep pointing to, just as Paul did. He had that thing which was of first importance, which is the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. If you start there as your starting point, everything else tends to be interpreted much more properly. And yet, some of these things, People will just, they'll build a huge mountain out of it, even though it's a molehill, and they take themselves away from the gospel, and it becomes dangerous. And we're going to point some of these things out to you. And some of them may be subtle enough that you haven't realized, oh, that has crept into even a church that I'm aware of or a church that I may be attending right now. And you need to be aware of that. So what are some of these things to start with? We've kind of lumped them into several little subcategories. So why don't you give us a few of these, and let's talk about them for a minute. Okay, so we'll take a look at some things that are kind of interrelated. You know, they're not exactly the same thing, but they kind of have the same roots, Mm -hmm. sort of the roots that are are in pantheism. And we see that manifest in the anointing of objects or nations or cities or neighborhoods or those kind of things, or, you know, using that anointing to cast out demons from objects. Mm -hmm. Some people will venerate or lift up objects as a a tool for whatever it is their the purpose that they're working towards. So Mm -hmm. we'll see things that might be called slain in the spirit or uh, drunkenness in the spirit. And all of those things kind of all tend back towards a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. Right. And uh, let me start by saying that anytime you start thinking about some of these things 
with the spirit as being more of an it or a force that gives you a clue that we're probably straying into this specific area like that because it's much more pantheistic overarchingly. Uh, and many people refer to the spirit in some of these churches as an it or as a force. You can almost think of it as sort of like Star Wars. May the force be with you. And if you start thinking that that force can inhabit inanimate objects or buildings or entire cities, things like that, it's starting to take us away from what we see as a balanced approach in Scripture to what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is, because he indwells within each believer and reminds us of things that Christ has taught so that we can become transformed by the Spirit to become more like Christ. That's what you can look for as the red flag if it's being treated like a force, especially in inanimate objects. When we talk about these slain in the spirit, you can't almost help but see, you know, the videos of a faith healer who comes up and bam, smacks somebody in the forehead and they fall backwards. I'm pretty sure that's kind of a, a red flag that something isn't right there. Mm-hmm. Got a friend who went to a church with a friend of his, and he watched these people start to walk up the sides of the aisles, and he realized later they were the catchers. So they were preparing for what was about to take place. So this wasn't something that the Holy Spirit just came upon folks at a time when God allowed it. They were preparing for this uh, sensationalistic, emotion-charged event where somebody was clearly expecting to get slain in the Spirit so that they would get smacked on the forehead, and then they would go completely unconscious, allegedly, and fall back into the arms of these people. And he said the whole thing just felt so made up. It just felt so contrived that he actually got up and walked out of the service because he said, I don't believe this is of the Spirit, It's especially not the Spirit I read about in the New Testament. And can God do that sort of thing? Sure, he can. But there's a very big difference between us being at the mercy of the Holy Spirit when he comes upon us in a specific way and the contrived nature of people thinking that you have to include that kind of emotionally charged ecstatic thing happening before you've actually really worshiped. And that's where I think people really get messed up. Yeah, the word that you used, I think, is contrived that encapsulates the essence of that whole process. Mm -hmm. It's a show. You have to wonder if there's really any spiritual value of that whole process. I don't think that's the method that God uses to indwell believers with the Holy Spirit. The other thing that we see in there is that people are concerned about evil spirits indwelling objects, Mm. whether it's a piece of furniture or it's a book or you know, a particular building, almost as if it's a haunting. It's easy to understand that concept because we see it in the horror movies all the time. You know, there's a a spirit within this particular building or this town or this nation. And when we were, you know, prepping for this, I was thinking there's a visual picture that we see in the works of Frank Peretti, where there are demons that have ruling authority over a particular place. But we don't necessarily see that in the scriptures. This was his fictionalization of trying to understand the different types of demons that there were and the powers and the principalities and so forth. Mm -hmm. But I think we lose track of the scriptural basis for that because we see the indwelling people. We understand that they can be in the world, but on a spiritual plane that we can't see. Mm-hmm. And they can even inhabit, uh, you know, animals and things, but it's a living thing that they inhabit. We saw the releasing of the uh, legion of demons into the pigs mm-hmm. who ran down the hill and drowned themselves. But we don't see that they're indwelling the rocks. And we don't see that they're indwelling a river. I think that's a, a misconception. It struck me, I've been reading the scriptures for a long time. And it took somebody else to point that out to think, oh, this is a form of pantheism, isn't it? (laughs) It's not the form I would typically think of, but it is. It's because God basically is in everything, but then we can flip that and sort of the converse of that is evil spirits can also inhabit everything, including inanimate objects. And that really starts to go into almost like voodoo and superstition. And it's just not a scriptural way for us to think about the Holy Spirit and his work in our heart and what he's there to do for us and in us. Another thing that we see sometimes is people will use objects as 
a way to assist their their worship activity you know they need something to hold on to or something to visualize for their worship to be meaningful or for their prayer life to be uh, magnified you know whether it's a, a flag or a banner or altars or icons um, any of these things start to to really border on idolatry yeah and and that is never a good thing so you know we want to make sure that we are looking specifically at the god the the triune god in the three persons the father son and the holy spirit mm -hmm. and not turn any one or all of them into this magical force as you said before that we see in star wars which is everything is part of that force which is in fact pantheism which comes directly out of the the new age teachings that we see yeah i'll give you an example of one church i heard about that's just in the, the next county over from us and i had met with the pastor a couple of times i thought he was a pretty good guy and i felt like he was pretty scriptural but i think he started to slip off into the deep weeds with some of this kind of stuff because one of the members of his church left his congregation because he said he started getting into some things that were kind of out there he ordered some prayer cloths that had evidently been anointed by the sweat of some faith healer and he was going to hand out these prayer cloths for people so that they could touch that and have the essence of this faith healing power imbued with the cloth itself and i thought man that's just way too blatant for me to think that this is just something like a, a pretty banner on the wall that has a scripture on it. There's no problem with that stuff. Those are helping to focus our attention where they need to be. But when we start attributing spiritual power to the object itself, or that there's a spirit force in that object, we're missing something, then it gets dangerous. That's one example of where I think we can see how it can start to stray from an object that just helps us focus to an object in which we think there is an actual spirit force. And it's interesting because you can certainly see if we go back to the story where the woman touched the hem of Jesus garment, mm -hmm. but that was Jesus garment. Right. And <laughs> that's very different than something that's been sweat upon by a human. There's, there's not the same divine power that would come through that cloth removed, not only from Christ, but removed from the human. Yeah, uh, yeah that's just not going to fly. Right. So if you get a, a pop-up advertisement in your email for somebody trying to sell you their spirit-anointed tears kept in a vial, don't spend money on that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so easy to find anything a banner, a book, object in the house that at some point can be a way to help you focus. But if it becomes the idol, then you've stepped away from true worship. And I mean, how many times in the Old Testament do we see God's punishment meted out on the Jewish nation because of idolatry, because they had taken on the practices of the people of the land that he already told them don't inhabit because the people of the land will will lead you down a, a path to idolatry. Exactly. And they did it anyway. Yeah. And a lot of people will point to that and say that that was a prejudice against their ethnicity. And if you really look at the spirituality behind that, no, it was because of idolatry. Then God was trying to keep them pure from the idolatry. That was the real root of why he wanted to keep them separate from that. Yeah, we're actually going to go into more detail on that next time. So let's go to our next segment, and there are a couple of manifestations of this one as well. You know, sometimes it's called synergy, might be called globalism, might be save the planet, but I think it all can be kind of defined into dominionism. So maybe we'll explain that a little bit more. Sure. There are quite a few churches today that they're teaching a lot about prayer gatherings, and if we can just get enough of God's people together to pray, united in purpose, of course, we can accomplish whatever we desire for the Lord, and thus we can bring a golden age of utopian peace and tranquility into our world. It's a dangerous misinterpretation of the scripture that says, where two or three are gathered in his name, whatever we ask for, he will give it to us. Well, that has to do with praying in his will, and when we read enough of the context around what his will is, 
it doesn't mean that we can just get enough people together to say, okay, God, we've got a majority now, <laughs> you know, we've got enough folks to make this happen. So we've got synergy. So we're going to ask you for this, not to mention the fact that he never promises that we're going to have this utopian peace, this side of his return. When Christ comes back, then he's going to usher in his leadership. And that's when things are finally going to be, be better again. You know, one of the political things we see all the time are they, they talk about the globalists becoming one world and, and uh, everything will be peaceful because we won't have all these different factions and these nations that are warring against each other. And it's just absolutely contrary to what we see in the final book. As you said, it's going to get a lot worse, and then we'll see a new heaven and a new earth where all of that is actually put into place, but it's by God and not by man, because everything that man does turns into garbage. Right. You're not kidding. I think you could see some of the influence of that uh, Eastern mysticism popping up in John Lennon's song when you're saying, imagine all the people and we don't have any heaven or hell, and there's and nobody's to blame for anything. It's just going to be unity. It's utopian that started to really creep in heavily into the psyche of many Americans, including Christians, when they start to believe that that's our aim, ushering in this new peace. It's not been promised to us. No, and, and it absolutely denies the fallen nature of man, which leads to the fallen nature of the world. If, if God is taken out of the equation, what do we see? We see things like war. We see things like slavery. We see things like human trafficking. We see things like drug abuse, crime. All of this stuff is absolutely contrary to that unity of peace. There is no oneness of humans because each human has one nature, which is selfish. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to go away until that sin nature is taken out of the equation. Right. And it's not going to happen worldwide, globally, where God's going to take that sin nature away from everybody, because each individual has to make his or her own choice to accept that gracious gift that God holds out and offers to everybody, but which he won't force on them because he respects the free will that he created us with. I could have sworn that you just took that right back to the gospel. That might be the case. That might be the case. So, uh, why don't you give us a little insight on the concept of spiritual mapping and how that is a New Age concept and not a New Testament concept? Yeah, I started to become familiar with some of this way back in the 80s, and I knew a couple of people who were starting to talk about it, and it, I didn't understand it very well, and I thought they were a little bit out there. <laughs> But spiritual mapping and other spiritual warfare methods used by New Agers are being employed in churches now because of this New Age creep. And some of these teachings are even included in best-selling Christian authors who have borrowed heavily from New Age teachings. Spiritual mapping is an occult technique that has been used, in fact, by witches and shaman for centuries. Let me give you a quote from an article, and I'm going to put the link to this article in our description of this episode. The article is titled, Is Spiritual Mapping Biblical? Probably you can tell by our tone that we don't believe it is. The Bible does not refer to spiritual mapping in any sense. Spiritual mapping, or the technique to determine a demon's geographical area of power in order to do battle with it, is not biblical. The quote goes on, Spiritual mapping is based on the belief that demons have the ability to assign, to work, or rule over specific territory. Those who espouse spiritual mapping usually also contend they can identify a specific demon, such as a spirit of greed around a particular casino, and then they will engage it in spiritual battle. Now, none of this is actually mentioned in the Bible, end quote from that article. You can see how people are taking this to a very personal level, and somehow they would have this unique ability to discern specific spirits and do battle with them in a way that the scriptures don't say that we have. No, in fact, the, the method of spiritual warfare that we are to use is generally um, get on our knees and pray because it is not we who actually do the battle, right. but it is God and his uh, righteous forces in the spiritual realm that will take care of the negative spiritual forces, and uh, there's not really any way that we can know who these various demons are, who, what their name is, what their territory is. Again, that uh, 
concept that we saw in the Frank Peretti books is very allegorical, but not necessarily something that we see in the scripture mm -hmm. as a, a very specific way that we can, you know, come up with a concrete picture of the spiritual nature of that battle. There are some people, I think, who look at a couple of Old Testament situations, but they were one-offs, and they were there for God to reveal certain specific power that he had, including opening the eyes of a prophet so that he could see that he was not, in fact, alone, and he was given a glimpse through that veil to know that God was fighting the battle on his behalf. That's great. It's good for us to know that. I don't think that establishes a practice of our being able to see all the time. I think the opposite is true. I think that we can't see most of that stuff all the time, and he doesn't want us to. If we focused on the darkness so much that we're spending all of our time trying to see demons, that's not healthy. So instead, he wants us to focus on the light and to look to Christ and to trust that he is in control of all of his angels and those who are fighting battles on our behalf. We can know that because of the Old Testament but we don't have to spend all of our time focusing on the darkness. The flip side of that, that some Christians spend all of their time focusing on angels instead of on Christ. Right. And that's also pulling you away from the truth of the scriptures because mm -hmm. our focus is to be on God, not on the created beings. If the believer is focused on an angel, even though that is a force for good, instead of focusing on Christ and the relationship with him and how they can share that with the fallen world, then they're going to be distracted and could conceivably be in another situation where the angel becomes an idol. Yeah, precisely. That's exactly what Lucifer wanted. He wanted people to focus on him rather than focusing on God himself. And Jesus, as one of the Godhead, is the one who is preeminent. We have to have the supremacy of Christ. If you read the book of Hebrews, and uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think you've expressed it well. We need to focus on Christ and not on either angels or demons. That's not our focus. Our focus is Christ. Keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and finisher of our faith. I think Paul the Apostle may have said that. Another thing that we see in a lot of churches is a change in the style of music that's presented, hmm. and very often it becomes very repetitive, and there are certain schools of music that we could point to if we wanted to. It's a tricky balance because clearly if we're going to sing some of the psalms some of those were repetitive as well they would give different attributes of god and then there would be sort of an echoed response to say the mercy of the lord endures forever and so that would be repeated and repeated and repeated so we're not the first to have invented that however some of the things that start to resemble a mantra do so in a way that it sounds and feels like they might be contrived enough to try to manipulate your emotions and get you into a specific place so that you can feel certain things and it becomes a sensual experience rather than a spiritual experience. And that's tricky. It's hard to know what that balance is all about. And we have to make sure that if we are singing those things, we're doing it with the right motive and that it's scripturally correct and that we're not trying to manipulate people by our music. You know, one of the things that I thought of when we you know, look at, at mantra, we don't see so much anymore, but back in the 70s, there was a huge wave from the Hare Krishnas. Oh, yeah. And their whole idea of an afterlife was reincarnation. And it's the last thing you were thinking about is what you became in the, your next iteration. Hmm. So they would be focused through their mantra on the Krishna so that they would move into that presence instead of becoming a fly or a wolverine or you know yeah. a wombat. We would see them all the time in the airports, and they'd be handing out flowers, hoping for donations. Mm -hmm. And they had a mantra that kept them focused just in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. Our focus needs to be on Christ, but we still need to be in the world doing all the things that we need to do, sharing the gospel so that others can know the, the peace and joy that we do as opposed to being a leech on society, begging for donations for a little tiny fake flower. And it, it kind of reminds me what you were talking about. There reminds me a little bit of Ghostbusters and they're trying to clear their minds. And the one guy says, oh no. And they go, what? And it turns out to be the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, that's not real scriptural. And that's not very theologically correct because clearly there are many things going through our minds at any given time. And so that becomes really 
faith in your mantra or faith in faith, and that becomes idolatry in a sense, rather than trusting that the God of grace has saved you, and you are living your life now in his grace, and you're a light to the world. And whatever you might have thought at the last moment just before you died, that's not going to seal your existence. Christ on the cross seals our existence. A much better place to be is focused on all of the responsibilities that we have, we're not the least of which is the transforming of our minds mm-hmm. through the uh, living word and uh, Christ, who is that living word. Right. I think along with that sort of mantra and repetition stuff it has to do with the feeling of being sensual. And I've seen some of the YouTubers that have gotten really famous. And if you just look at them without the music playing, you start to think, hmm, this feels to me like they could be really tipping over into the edge of being very sensual and emotion-driven rather than Christ-driven. And I think that's where you start to feel uncomfortable. And I, I heard one young lady say that she went to another church, and they're reaching a lot of people for Christ. She said, but some of their performances in concert-like venue in their worship feels to her like it's kind of contrived and sensual, and she feels uncomfortable about that, which means that she's starting to sense that there's something there that might not be quite in line with Scripture. And I'm glad that she has that discernment level, because there may be just uh, not really musically savvy people, but they're singing with all their heart, doing the best they can in 40 people gathered in a worship service, and God is hearing that and somehow he filters it into his ears, and it becomes a beautiful sound. And then you could have a very professional concert-like venue where people are very, very excellent in what they're doing, and we should strive for excellence. But when you start to feel that there's a whole lot of emotion that's leading to an ecstatic experience, and it's sensual, it's really got to be cautious that we're not straying into that area. Another thing we look at is the concept of automatic writing. Now, a lot of people may or may not be very familiar with that. Give us a little background on the concept of automatic writing. Yeah, I saw a movie not too long ago where there was a psychologist trying to hypnotize somebody, and they said, now, whatever comes into your mind, I want you to just put this pin in your hand and see what comes out. And they were writing some stuff down. That's kind of similar to what we're talking about here, this automatic writing. Some will teach that it's a way to hear from God. So they're told to read the Bible and then just write down anything that comes into their mind in a very free-flowing manner. And while God could certainly speak to us through the Spirit as we read His Word, some of this kind of automatic writing leads people to receive messages that are not really biblical at all, or that in fact are against what is written in Scripture, because they clear their mind to the point that they've cleared the Scripture right out of it, and it's not coming from God at all. It's coming from a counterfeit. And it could be even be coming from the dark side. It could be coming from Satan. So there are some today who'd say that they are personally receiving direct messages from God because he physically guided their hands to write. That almost sounds like a Ouija board. We need to offer some strong caution about this because there are solid, wise, biblical interpretive methods based on the context of other scriptures, and the wisdom of those who know enough about the Scriptures to say, well, this is what that means because of what was said just two chapters ago, and this weird stream-of-consciousness type of automatic writing, which tends to avoid those contexts. And after a while, if somebody thinks that God is really giving them those things, then they start to believe everything they write down must be directly to them from God, which means they're elevating what's going down on that paper with Scripture. They're rising to the level of inspired Word of God, and we're not supposed to be doing that. And we should note that Christ never mentioned anything about this type of message receiving. The reference we made earlier is, what about David? Because he said, I have in writing from the hand of the Lord upon me, and he gave me understanding in the details of this plan. Mm -hmm. So some would say, well, isn't that the same thing? And we would say, no. (laughs) in short, because God didn't force David's hand to write. The Holy Spirit came upon David and gave him understanding of the plans that God had for the temple. But that means that God spoke to David, and then David wrote those plans down. It's not the same as automatic writing. All that to say, if somebody is practicing this or encouraging it, 
uh, take a hard look at it because chances are that it's coming from a new age mysticism and not from the Lord himself. What about interfaithism? Ah, interfaithism. I love that title. It's a funny word. Interfaith. Uh, New Agers are very interfaithy in their outlook, uh, and now many Christians have started to have those same kinds of concepts or sensibilities. I don't think they're very sensible, so I wouldn't even use the term sensibilities. I, th- I think they're starting to adopt some things that are dangerous about the, the way they think about being interfaith. They have already crossed all denominational and Christian lines, and so now they're finishing the process by crossing religious lines in order to bring together this new age unity necessary for the enemy to carry out his purposes in the world. Do you see where this is headed? It's the same thing about people who think we can bring in this utopian unity, and God does not promise that in his word. So people who are going down that line are missing a lot of God's teaching about the way things are going to get so much worse, and the Antichrist is going to come into the world, and there are going to be factions, and going to be the true believers that will stand firm to the end, and then Christ comes back, and we don't know if it's going to be mid-trib or post-trib or pre-trib. We, we talked about that in a couple of our other episodes, but the fact is when Christ comes back, he is going to rule, and then those who will be in Christ will have that kind of unity together. And there will be a separation, and there will be a place reserved for those who have rejected Christ. This whole New Agey crossing all denominational lines and looking for unity ignores that, and it really gets into what that next big subcategory is, which is universalism. Yeah, universalism is something we've talked about a number of times, and it's an important teaching in the New Age philosophy. You know, they end, they believe that everybody's going to end up in a good place, whatever that might be, you know, whatever your particular group calls it. Mm-hmm. And there won't be suffering and there won't be judgment and there won't be evil. But that's not even close to what the Bible talks about when we look at judgment and eternal punishment. You know, if you want to go back to a couple of or three of our episodes, episode three in this season, season five, we looked at it in season one and episode eight, which was did God create evil? And in episode 11, will God reconcile all people to himself? Mm -hmm. That may be one of the best ones where we look at it. But a lot of Christians are buying into the New Age idea that God is good, and therefore he's not going to punish anyone, at least not eternally, you know, maybe for a little bit, and then they'll get over it, and he'll bring them back into the fold. You know, they somehow believe that he's going to save those that have never believed in the gospel. We have to ask, how can God deny the sacrifice of his son? Would God nullify the death of his only son? According to universalism, he probably would. According to the Bible, I don't think so. Right. Yeah, for God to somehow reverse his decision and say, oh, sorry, son, I didn't mean to put you through all that. Uh, I've changed my mind, and I'm going to let everybody in. Yeah, it was necessary for Christ to die. That was his purpose. And that's why the gospel has got to be the center of everything we look at in interpreting all the rest of Scripture. God would not deny his own son's sacrifice or nullify it. He wouldn't say, yeah, he was a martyr, and that's a good thing, but he didn't really need to do that because I was going to save everybody anyway. That makes no sense. It's illogical, and it it just flies in the face of who God is and why it was necessary for Jesus, the only unblemished lamb, the perfect one, the holy one, to die in the place of all those people who had sinned so that their sin could be atoned for. And it absolutely undermines the credibility of the Bible. It does. And since that's not really possible, then we can't really believe that that is how things are going to play out. There's, right. there's eternal judgment and punishment and those on the right side of the ledger will have eternal peace in uh, the new heaven and the new earth. So there's a whole nother pile of things that were kind of lumped together here, mm-hmm. which has to do with astrology and auras and personal prophecy and portents and signs, and even the idea that there are female deities. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of like Greek mythology to, to us. Yeah. But yeah, there's a, lot, a big push for that. And I think we have some rather extremist feminism creeping in, which has been a part of the new age creep as well. So yeah, there's a lot of that going on today. 
uh, and a lot of this comes right out of occult practices, in fact, because we know we way back, even when Paul was writing to some of that stuff in Corinth, for example, they had some of these female deities and they would have temple orgies and they would have temple prostitutes so that they could participate in these worship practices. So some of this is it's just the same old sin, but renamed slightly. And that's very new agey, but it's really an old practice. And it's something that we need to be avoiding at all costs. Well, and we even see it today when we look at the concept of Mother Nature. And if we take that even further, there's the, the female de deity Gaia, who is the female god of the earth. And, you know, we're trying to appease Gaia with all of these global warming, climate change kind of practices mm -hmm. that uh, are probably not going to make a bit of difference. And as a pastor friend of mine once said, you know, I, I think we should be good stewards of the earth, but God's going to destroy it anyway. Yeah, that's been promised. That's going to happen. It's, it's an uncomfortable thing to have to face. It's one of those inconvenient truths, except a biblical one. <laughs> and yet we do see these practices, and there are an awful lot of people today that would say, well, I think that there's this patriarchal, tyrannical leadership in the church, and I don't want to have any part of that. I, I've heard that from somebody that I had known fairly well, and I, I feel badly that they have been influenced by this unbiblical teaching. Because if we know the true nature of God who loves us, he's established certain things for our thriving, and the Trinity even represents some of these wonderful relationships together that are very complementary. And we've gone into that in a couple of our podcasts as well. So God is a God of love. He's a God of justice. He's established all of his order for a reason. They're good purposes for those things. And so anything that starts to lean toward the female deities or even the worship of Mary, which the Catholic Church has really championed, I think we need to be very cautious about that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's the one that, that a lot of people will have trouble with, because obviously Mary is a very important part of the entire story. But nowhere in the scriptures does it say that she's divine. Right. That's reserved for God in three persons, mm -hmm. not for the vessel through whom Christ was born. Sure. And she would probably say that as well. Oh, she did. Uh, she sang it right after she found out that she was expecting and, and she gave glory to him. So, yeah, she was worshiping the true one. <laughs> yeah. So if, you know, if people are elevating her to the level of divinity, then that is a uh, very dangerous position mm -hmm. to, to build your life on. Praying to the saints, praying to Mary, praying to angels, you know, which are, are practices that we see. Uh, mm -hmm. Anytime we're praying to something other than the true God, uh, they're not going to go anywhere. And again, we're, we're looking mm -hmm. straight into the face of idolatry. Yeah, that's taking us away from the supremacy of Christ. Uh, another thing that I've noticed, and I've even heard this talked about by one of our own church members because they have a relative of theirs who lives in another state, they've been going to a psychic, try to get readings. And there are some who would claim, oh yeah, but they can be gifted of God, and so they can even be given words of knowledge. So Christian psychics? Uh, now, we don't think so. The scripture is so clear about that, that no, we're supposed to avoid that stuff, like the plague don't have anything to do with mediums or mystics, psychics, that kind of stuff. The Bible is clear about that. I mean, it just absolutely comes right out and says, don't do that. So we can't be any more plain than just to say, if you think that it's an okay thing to have a reading or to have some palm read or go to have tarot cards, just stay away from that stuff. It opens up yourself to the occult and to the other side of this spiritual warfare that we have going on. Yeah, I had an interesting experience years ago. I was a brand new Christian, so I was probably in my late teens, and I went to visit my cousin in California, mm -hmm. who had recently been married, and he said, um, we need to go over to my in-law's house for a little bit, and he said, while we're there, we'll see the uh, model train club setup that's in their basement, and which we did. Partway through the, our time there, his mother-in-law just took me by the hand and went, oh, and she said, you have a golden aura, <laughs> and I see that in your future, you will be very prominent in a well-known denomination, which she didn't name, mm -hmm. and I was kind of 
put off by that just a little bit. And when we were no longer in the home, uh, my cousin said, oh, that's just my mother-in-law. She's she's quite psychic. Just, Ooh. you know, take it with a grain of salt. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I've you always had that in the back of my mind and go, okay, golden aura. Well, yeah, maybe mm -hmm. I can't see it. And right. Uh, right. never really been that prominent in any major denomination, but doesn't <laughs> mean that I'm still not fighting the battle for Christ every day. Right. So, yeah, there probably are some people who have a spiritual discernment to be able to see things like that. But we're not supposed to be putting our faith in the ability to see people's auras. I think there are a lot of these people who get really pulled away from keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. And it's other people in the dark side who see that light and they're blown away by it almost literally. And so, yeah, we need to just be cautious about not allowing ourselves to get pulled into things that are really guided by the occult. Yeah, we didn't really talk too much about astrology, but I heard a quote one day that I really liked, and it was, I don't have faith in the stars. I have faith in the one who made the stars. There we go. That's you know, and he can use the stars to point things out mm -hmm. and to use for his purposes. But again, if we're focused on the stars instead of the creator, mm -hmm. then we're missing the point. You got it. So what about the idea of feelings-based discernment? Oh, this is so prevalent today. And I, I struggle with how to involve people in my congregation as I begin a message. I want to try to begin in a way that lets them know that God's word has something personal for them, because it does. But a lot of preachers are really leaning into that heavily and trying to preach to felt needs. And it's almost like they're catering to the feelings of their congregation members and the people they're speaking to, to the exclusion of biblical teaching that would say it's not all about our feelings. It's easy to start tipping that into the direction of being ear ticklers and saying what they want to hear so that they'll continue to give to our ministry. Uh, I think there's one big one that you and I have agreed that it's okay to call him out by name because he does this a lot and he does so regularly and he misinterprets scripture and misuses it often. And that's Joel Osteen. I have to call him out and say, brother, if we could sit down and have a good coffee together, uh, maybe one of those Jamaican coffees strong enough to keep us awake. I would try to explain to you why I think it's important that we not just lean into people's feelings and meet their felt needs because sometimes we need to feel shame or guilt if we're guilty and have a reason to feel ashamed. That is one of the ways that God speaks to us to let us know that what we've done is sin, and we have to repent from that. So there are certain teachings that if we lean too heavily toward the feelings, we're teaching people to go by their feelings to interpret Scripture or to discern God's will, and feelings are really bad about lying to us because we tend to be very self-serving because of our sin. You know, when we look at how Christ dealt with people. I mean, as you said, he's compassion incarnate, has empathy for people, and yet um, the woman at the well, and he says, here is your life, and you're not doing what you're supposed to. Right. You know, he pointed out the sin so that he could have a real conversation about her spiritual need. Yep, he did indeed. I'm sure she felt bad about that. And I I have tended, this is a confession that I had to repent from this uh, earlier in my ministry. I think I was tiptoeing around things that I was afraid would hurt people's feelings. And sometimes the Holy Spirit is convicting, and you just need to let him convict. And it's okay. If somebody's feeling the real conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's very different from just being a jerk and stepping on people's feelings. And if I feel like that I'm preaching a truth from God's word and they're starting to feel like, oh man, God is talking to me. And I realize I'm wrong in this area and I need to get right. So I have to repent and throw myself at God's mercy and know that he's going to forgive me. That's understanding that, yes, there are strong feelings involved, both happy feelings and good feelings and praise and worship and feelings of conviction. They're all there. But if we get into this feelings oriented karma stuff and all that mysticism from the East, and if it starts to creep into our religion, then we can be really dangerous. And because we're already there. I mean, there are a lot of people who are doing what's right in their own eyes. And scripture tells us that's what's going to be happening in the last days. Christians are being taught to rely on their feelings as a way to discern truth. And we can't trust our feelings for that. There was a guy that I've been spending a lot of time with. 
he told me about a guy that he had, I think it was an Uber driver, if I remember right. And my friend David got into a spiritual discussion with this guy. And the guy said, yeah, I've been through a few things in my life on my journey. He said, I was going to go into the military, but I kind of got busted for illegal use of a certain drug. And so it turned out I wasn't allowed to join. So fortunately, I know now that it was just God's plan for me not to go into the military. And David was trying not to be really rude and to, to say right up front, that wasn't God, dude. You're laying that one on God. Don't do that. That was your fault. <laughs> you broke the law. You knew that was wrong and you broke the law. That's why you didn't go into the military. Can God use a plan B? Yes, of course he can. But he didn't do that. So he was very kind. He was tactful. And by the end of that ride, as they were drawing near the location, they were going to get dropped off. He said, would you mind if I prayed for you before we go? The guy said, hey, I need all the prayer I can get. I'm open for that. Sure. So David said, while I was praying, I felt a Holy Spirit being able to lead me. And I said, and so God help him to understand the, the truth and what it means to break the law and that you are a forgiver of those who break the law. And so he was rewording it through his prayer to let the guy have a glimpse of the fact that maybe it wasn't necessarily really God who kept him out of the military. It was probably him. So that's how these feelings-based things can start creeping into how we even view God and how he speaks to us. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground. Yes, Not just we did. today, but over the past past three sessions. So <laughs> uh, it's it's very likely that some of the things that we talked about hit that third rail. Mm -hmm. Some of them stepped on some toes, perhaps stepped on some feelings, but hopefully we see that there are a lot of new age practices that are creeping into the church and creeping into the life of certain believers. And it's very likely that some of our fellow theologians may have recognized that there's some of that in their life, some of that in their church, and they need to repent. And perhaps we should lead them in a prayer of repentance. And it's possible that even through all of these weird mystic concepts that we've talked about, mm -hmm. there's been enough gospel that we've put in there that some of our theologian said, I need to, for the very first time, get my life right with Christ. Right. And we should pray for them too. I would love to do that because I think you're right on both counts. And uh, I know in my own life, because I'm being transformed, God still speaks to me often about things that I've started to have some bad thinking. And he needs to adjust that and bring me back into focus to keep my eyes fixed firmly on Jesus. And so I know that there probably are some who fit these categories that you've just mentioned. And I will be happy to lead some model prayers for that. You could pray something like this, for example. Lord, I recognize that it's easy for me to start having influences from the world that do creep into my thinking. And I want my mind to be filled with Jesus Christ and his character qualities and uh, all the attributes, the fruit of the Spirit, because it's the Spirit of Christ that indwells in my heart and mind. And when something is trying to take me away from that or is distracting me from keeping my eyes focused purely on Jesus, I need to repent. I would just repent from these things that I've heard today that struck a nerve. And I thought, ooh, yeah, I'm guilty of that one. Or I've been intrigued with that one. And I need not to be intrigued by it. I need to recognize that it's associated with something that could take me away from the balanced life you have, the thriving life that I can have through Christ as I keep focused on him. So forgive me of these things that have distracted me. Help me to put those aside and give them to you. Uh, I'll just nail them to the cross because I identify with being crucified on the cross with Christ. And he's raised me up to be a new creation in him. And I don't have to worry about those other things. Christ is enough. He's everything I need to give my life meaning and purpose and a sense of belonging to his family. And so I'm just going to put these other things aside recognizing that they're not healthy in my walk with him. And if you are uh, somebody that wants to accept that grace of Christ for the first time, you could say something like this, God, I recognize that I need you in my life and that you've promised to give me your Holy Spirit to indwell in my heart and life. You will live in my brain and in my emotions that you become the spiritual guide for me. I don't need any other spiritual guides. I don't need occult practices. I don't need tarot cards. I don't need palm readers. I don't need any of that stuff. I need Christ. You are preeminent, and I want to make you preeminent. I want to put you on the throne of my life. 
and I want you to guide me the rest of my days here on earth as long as I'm alive, and I want you to guide me into that eternity that you promise for everybody who is under your atoning protection because of what you've done for me because of your atonement on the cross. You did all the work necessary for me to have all my sins forgiven and to have that transformed life that you promise. And I need that. I want it. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to guide my life. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's so easy to get sidetracked. Yeah. The good news is repentance is a moment away. Mm -hmm. And the right relationship is right on the other side of that repentance. Oh, it is indeed. I think about some of the folks whose stories I have heard, and I'm thinking about them as I'm praying and just praying that God in his love and mercy and the way he continually reveals himself to others, that he will reveal truth to these, including some who used to know the truth, but they've started to stray away from it because they're being influenced by the philosophies of the world. And that's where the real spiritual battles are being fought. Paul talked about that a lot too. And I want God to win those battles because I want these people to know that Christ is everything we need and we can belong to God's family through Christ. And we don't have to worry about all the rest of this stuff that the world is hurling at us, trying to pull us away from him. You know, there's a good chance that we're going to do this again next time, probably mm -hmm. about a week from now. And we're going to tackle a subject that is a big distraction for a lot of people. And it's mm -hmm. a misconception of the nature of God from yeah. some things that we see in the Old Testament. Yep. So yep. that should be a fun one to tackle. And the good it. news is we can put a, a more clear picture of the true nature of God mm -hmm. through the misconception that we'll talk about next time. I'm looking forward to that. And I think it's going to be important and vital. Very good. Thank you, Rick, for hanging in there with me today. And fellow theologians, we thank you if you hung in this long, you must be getting something out of this stuff. And so we appreciate that. We want to give you a big uh, virtual high five. Thanks for hanging in. And I do hope that you will join us again next time for the next episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.